And you can look at that and you can infer, rightly or wrongly, a lot about that person. Who are they? Mm. What's their name? Yeah. Where, where do they live? Where are they from? What do they care about? What magazines are they reading? What's the last movie they saw? What kind of car are they driving? And I think that is really um, fun and enjoyable for yeah, us, yeah. Uh, both to take that in from other people, but to also put that out. Like, imagine this person and, and leaving some mystery in it. Who is the person that carries this laydown of stuff? Today, we're chatting with Ryan Coulter, visionary founder and chief creative officer of the James brand. With a stellar background crafting for Nike and Burton snowboards, Ryan's experience shapes the James brand's unique identity. Embracing less is more, form follows function and reductive design, Ryan transcends traditional product creation. For him, it's about crafting experiences seamlessly integrating into our daily lives. The James Brand's products are a testament to this ethos. Beautiful craftsmanship, meticulous attention to detail, and a perfect blend of functionality and aesthetics. Join us as we explore the artistry of reductive design and the purposeful elegance defining the James Brand. Ryan, it's so great to have you on today. You've had a storied career working with big names ranging from Burton back in the early days to Nike. Uh, you've you've worked with agencies like Ziba Design, uh, and now you've founded the James brand. Can you give us a little bit of your background and, and what led you to industrial design and and ultimately how these experience how these experiences sort of compounded and motivated you to shift from uh, corporate or and agency design to entrepreneurship? Sure, sure. So there's two parts to the story, and I'll give you the long story first. But I, I grew up in the Midwest. I, I have always drawn things since I was little. Um, but I didn't draw, like I, I don't feel like then or, or now that I'm um, artistically talented, but I had things in my head that I wanted to get onto paper and that I wanted to make them real. And so, um, I drew a lot as a kid with circle templates and straight edges and triangles and, you know, I'm, I'm fairly tight about a lot of things. And, and, you know, I, I drew vehicles and spaceships and aircraft and all these things that I really wanted to sort of make my own. And I still have stacks of that stuff from when I was kid. I used to just, you know, and when you're drawing, your, your mind is actually inside that space. And you are drawing, you're drawing yourself in there. Uh, that's where the word is coming from. You know, you're drawing it out of you. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time, you know, like, like imagining I was in those vehicles and that I was in those spaces and um, sort of combine that on one side, you know, I, I grew up in the 1970s, 1980s. I'm, you know, going on 52 this year. Um, but Gus Grissom, one of the first Apollo astronauts, grew up in the town next to me. And, and I was totally enthralled as a kid with uh, aerospace and with uh, space flight and, and this idea that there's this person literally down the road in my small farming town that had, you know, that was theoretically going to the moon and who had been to space was like uh, totally like a door open for me. And I was like, well, you know, if he can do it, then you can do anything. So those two things kind of combined. And so I went to um, Purdue University in Indiana 
um, as a mechanical engineer and, and sort of an aerospace engineer, because that's where all the astronauts have gone. Gus Grissom, Neil Armstrong, uh, all of those folks had done that. And, I, you know, I had made this determination when I was seven years old that I was going to do it. That's the only school I applied to. Um, I got good grades and worked really hard to make that happen. And uh, I did it. And I was just so, and it was really hard. Oh my gosh. Um, mechanical engineering was difficult and especially, you know, it's a weed out program and a lot of math and a lot of thermodynamics and hydrodynamics and uh, optics and mm. man, I just, I just want to make this stuff that I'm trying to draw. Yeah. Like, when do we, when do we get to that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was, uh, I was in the union at Purdue one day and I walked my hallway and there was an exhibition, an industrial design ex exhibition happening. And I didn't know what that was. I'd never seen it or heard it. And again, people don't remember this, but there were no magazines or no internet. And there was no way for me to be exposed to new ideas like that, unless they kind of just bubbled up, you know, in the local media or in like my scene in Bloomington, Indiana, and they didn't. So I walked in, I was just like, what is this? Like, here are models, here are renderings, here are early versions of CAD drawings. And I was like, this is what I do. This is what I want to do. This is what I thought I was doing, but I'm not doing it. Um, and so I found the person who was responsible for it, Steve Visser, who's still at Purdue running that program. Uh, and just said, what is this? And how do I do it? And uh, I said, I can't draw. Or I can draw, but I only draw like this. Uh, I said, well, we can teach you how to do these other things. And the part, what makes this feel so interesting is you actually have to do a lot of stuff. I'm like, that's great. I like to do a lot of stuff. Um, and so I really fell headlong in love with it. You know, it's just, it was, it was an amazing moment where it's like, that was the thing that I had literally been doing since I was a young kid. Um, and I've kind of just been on some version of that track ever since. I mean, it, you know, you basically end up just strapping in and going for a ride, literally for the rest of your life or career, and kind of see where that uh, where that takes you. But as you all know, like you you've kind of made this commitment to a creative life. Um, yep. mm. I wouldn't change that for the world, but yeah. it, it means you're signed up for an adventure, and and that's you know that's what it has been. So that's been like that was the front half of my life and kind of how I got started in all of this from a career By the standpoint. Way. I, I love how you said, I, I don't consider myself much of a creative person. And then you just can proceed to <laughs> unleash this whole creative monologue about <laughs> sketching. And, <laughs> and, I just never uh, felt like, you know, what makes it all so interesting is there are people, and this is what I think what made, you know, industrial design classwork so interesting. And everyone that's been through this and, and other industrial education efforts, I'm sure the same. There's a guy on my right that was the most amazing render of all time. Incredible but he couldn't figure out form to save his life. And there was a yeah. guy on my left that could figure out how to make the most amazing models of everything, but he couldn't sketch. Yeah. There's a guy across from me who could sketch like crazy, but he couldn't ever figure out alias. And so in that amalgamation, you could see like what greatness looked like in all of these various like applications, yeah. but no one actually had it all. And that's actually what led me to creative leadership is that I'm not great at any one of these things. I mean, I've got my strengths. I, I was good at CAD. I was good at rendering. I was good at sort of the technical side of that stuff like I always had been. But I wanted to work with a team. I wanted to build an orchestra of people who were great. And I wanted the first chair violinist as a sketcher and the first cello, you know, the, the cellist is my mm -hmm. 3D modeler. And I want the engineer that also thinks about it. And so 
I don't really see myself. I mean, I, I've always been maybe apologetic for my own creative abilities, um, but I, I was good at understanding it and seeing the talent and pulling it together into a thing. And I think the thing that I'm, I'm best at now, which is kind of what has led me to the things that I do is pulling together those creative teams and helping to set the vision. So in reality, my tool and something that I'm good at, I think is I write a lot and I make a lot of frameworks and I get people set up on the track and I pull it together into a new thing. Um, so I did, you know, I always felt, I was always sort of apologetic for not being artistic. I was creative, but in a way that was sort of technical and verbal. Uh, and so it was, it was difficult for me to understand that that was creative. I was like, that's, that's, te that's technical. That's engineering. Yeah. You're, you're making yeah. things, but, um, but industrial design just blew all those boundaries open. All of a sudden it's like, well, it, this is all of that. You have to kind of do, you have to be able to do some of all of that and pull all of that together. And I'm like, man, there's nothing else like that out here. And the net results are things that you actually use, which was always to me, the metric was the things that were mass produced, uh, like a thing I could go and buy and that other people could buy um, yeah. partially because it was a way to demonstrate value. You yeah. did something that people yeah. they cared about, and even if they don't know you, you're not like the face of it. But you worked on this thing, and people shelled out a hundred dollars for it. You created value, hundred dollars worth of value. You yeah. plus a team, plus a brand, and all the other components. Um, but it was a really interesting way to like uh, immediately make your value demonstrable. Um, where I think a lot of things, it's it's maybe not so. Not so easy to do that. I mean, I used to love when I worked at Burton, you know, I'd kind of go and hang out in the retail. You know, Burton had its own big retail shop still does. And I, I was the binding guy. So I was designing yeah. um, the snowboard bindings. And I would go in there and just hang around and watch people take them off the shelf and talk about them. And I would never say like, hey, I'm the guy that's responsible for those. I would just listen <laughs> to what they said. And same thing, you would hear them get excited about it. Like, wow, this thing is so cool. I really love this thing. And that to me was uh, uh, was great fun and made me feel like I was doing something that was meaningful. Well, in terms of the in, in terms of the framework, frameworks and creative leadership you're talking about, Ryan, um, you know, for those listening, Ryan was a professor of mine at, at one point when I was studying uh, industrial design. Uh, and I, I vividly remember, Ryan, we were working on some sort of final project in our last couple of years, and you had a blank whiteboard, and you just took this blue uh, dry erase marker, and you just wrote this hero's journey arc, uh, and and you basically removed us from the complexities of all of the details of the design and, and sort of like checked off parts of the hero's journey of like problem solving, uh, you know, delight, satisfaction. Uh, so just, and, just want to put that out there. You know, I thought that was <laughs> one of the coolest things in my education because while I was studying industrial design, it totally removed me out of the, the sketching, the CAD and, you know, all the things we see on the whiteboards. And it was like, wait, wait, why does this exist? Why, why does somebody want to hand over a hundred dollars for this product? So, I thought that That's was awesome, very memorable. Son. Thank you. Love that.
<laughs> Simon was an awesome student. Simon was one of my favorite students. And for people that have done teaching, especially after working in the professional world, you forget suddenly that all of a sudden there's this entire range of both skills, interests, and sort of investment that students make. Um, and all of that has been sort of weeded out at the point when you're working with people professionally. And so um, that was some, I've done a few different sort of professorships and that was one of them. But in the class, there was this, a very wide range of capabilities and skills. Because this was a senior industrial design class or a thesis class. Um, and people, you know, and what people were willing to put into it. And Simon was one of those people that pushed hard and asked questions and was clearly just deeply engaged. And I clearly, you know, hopefully in a way that was not unfair, uh, you know, Simon and, and the other folks that were like him got my attention. He was the um, teacher's so, pet. Yeah. It's a relationship in there. And I was willing to match the efforts of those that were willing to invest, but there were other people in the same class. And so that's why those frameworks and things became you know, important to kind of get everyone on the same page. We'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play & Conversations is brought to you by Play & Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play & Co. for a design project, be sure to visit playandco.com. Yeah, I, I really liked your analogy of the, like, putting together an orchestra. Um, I've always loved looking at it like a, you know, like a professional baseball team, you know, at the highest level yes. of that sport, you get rid of that, those high school, you know, student feelings of like, I want to be the all rounder. I want to be the shortstop or whatever. You learn how to, how to do your best for the part that serves the greater team. Um, I think there's, there's so many people I can think of in my kind of design journey that could have been an incredible CAD modeler, but the weight of the kind of the education and design education system makes them need to compete at the highest level across all of those. And, you know, some of them have kind of, you know, washed out of the uh, of the path they, you know, wanted to be on and could have been part of like a collab, you know, a higher level collaborative group. And the ones that continue to fight through there uh, often find a way to play their part and the ones who accept that they can play a, a huge part in the collaborative kind of workspace. Uh, those are the ones I'm I, like, it's amazing the, that they they power through some of that stuff, despite, you know, any you know limitations that they have naturally. Yeah. Yeah. We used to deal with this uh, quite quite a lot in uh, in the Nike realm, and I saw it other places too. And I, I always call it sort of the, you know, the professional creative's dilemma. But you come in and you are a junior designer and you get good and you work up to being a middle designer and a senior designer. And then suddenly you become a creative director. And as you become a creative director, the skill set actually changes dramatically. And you're probably pens down and you're doing leadership and framing and selling and presenting and budget management uh, and managing you know, sort of motivation and things for all of these other people. And in the Nike realm, you know, Nike would get like hotshot talent. And, and a lot of that talent was visual talent. And these people would get promoted into being creative directors quickly because they were like really rock star designers. But then their entire team would quit and then they would get fired because they did a terrible job of being a creative director, but they did a great job of being sort of a, you know, a mid-level designer. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so Nike actually implemented this really interesting program where you basically 
got to kind of choose two paths and there was no disparity in pay or recognition or bands or any of that stuff. That's like, Hey, on this path, you're going to move towards leadership and creative leadership. And that means you're going to need to learn new skills and we'll help you with that. And you're going to actually have to design less. So you have to make sure that's what you actually want to do, or you're going to really focus on the craft and you're going to stay a designer forever. And you'll become like the senior designer kind of work into like being almost like a fellow uh, and you'll be responsible for the craft of that and actually helping share that craft with others. Um, but you won't ever actually manage a team of people. You will always be deployed as like a specialist yeah. um, that will get sort of drafted. And I was like, oh, it's, it's, I'm so glad that they did that because Nike, we used to do this crazy turnover and this explosion of teams. Mm. It would start out one way and morph and just get to this boiling point and then just rupture. <laughs> uh, and then it would start all over again. And you would see it happen again and again yeah i feel like that's yeah, that especially is. common in the footwear world yes yeah, yeah. yes I, th I i really i think that the the challenge when you become a creative director is really letting go and 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 again it's that's like right. as you mentioned it's really orchestrating the right talent under you and guiding them and giving them the right direction to do their best work and i think we over i think that takes time I think for our career, it was like that. It was took some time to learn to let go. But I think you you, you become, you shape into that person that inspires people. Mm. And I'm still a greedy designer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I still don't know my boundaries. I think that, that's, the, that's the benefit of uh, sort of teaching. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you Karen does, know what yeah. you do. Karen does it well. And, um, but uh, yeah. It, within our consultancy, we're growing right now. Uh, gratefully, we have some fantastic work and clients and talent, and um, yeah, we're, that's what we're tra transitioning into. So your your um, your point about um, going one of two ways, not to oversimplify it, becoming a fellow or a master of the craft or a leader, we saw that um, implemented at. Um, at Teague actually and mm -hmm. Phillips. So I've seen that done in in bigger companies and it's it's quite good, I think. I think it's a great approach. So there's not like a linear trajectory where people only see their role as moving into management and the soul crushing kind of stuff. It's not for everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not. It definitely is not. No, no. It, yeah. and I, there were a lot of issues with that. So so from from the Nike and I know you you did uh in terms of your career trajectory, Ryan, you you went you did Burton uh, in the early days of the bindings, which you know I remember as a snowboarder was a very awesome time to be a snowboarder. Um, yeah. To yeah. Nike, and then I know you went to Zeba, and I think you went back to Nike. So now today you're the you cre created the James brand. You're the founder of the James brand. Um, can you give us a little bit of background of the origin story of that and and how that came to be and and you know as an analog product in an increasingly digital world how you were connected to this particular object yeah so again I'll, let me go back in time to kind of set the stage for some things but you know i grew up in the midwest um my parents were divorced and, and so my mother who i lived with lived in bloomington indiana which is a very like the liberal college town in a very rural, like Midwestern environment. It's like your Madison, Wisconsin, or your, you know, your Lawrence, Kansas. There are Missoula. those places. 
But yeah, exactly. Missoula, yeah. Montana, Austin, Texas. It's that kind of orientation. And my, my dad lived about five hours away in a very, just a classically rural area. Um, you know, they were farmers. And even in, in Bloomington, I grew up on a, you know, sort of outside of the city limits, but on a small farm. Um, and so I always, from the time I was young, I had sort of a pocket knife with me because I had chores to do. I had, like, I had to, like, you know, give hay to animals and you know, feed chickens and milk goats and gather eggs. And, um, you know, my mom did and my dad did and my grandfather did. It's just the thing that you always sort of had with you um, all the time. So it was very common for me to just understand the utility of this object. I was just kind of raised with it. Um, so that's kind of where the seed was planted. Like the next part of that is in my, my dad actually worked for the, the coal mining industry. He was a coal, a coal miner, um, but worked on like the big steam shovels. I wasn't like down, you know, in the coal or anything, but, you know, worked on big, big equipment in the coal mines. And, and um, as a union person, like they would give him sort of personalized pocket knives um, you know, as, as awards for like years of service and things. And then my dad would often give them to me and they were very meaningful as, as a conveyance of value from him to me. And partially because they were personal, it was not something you just buy off the shelf. This one actually like had his name on it and, you know, thanks for 20 years of service. Uh, but it also conveyed this, um, there's an inherent sense of trust and responsibility when you're a young kid, especially for getting something like that, because uh, if, if not used properly, these things can be dangerous to yourself and to others. And so, you know, when, when my dad would give me those, the message was, I trust you um, and you're meaningful. And so there was this really amazing smash up of like emotional conveyance mm. with, with straight up practicality. It did both of those things. And it's hard to pin down other project, other items that do that. Mm. Um, and so, and, and I think, you know, knowing that this is in a lot of ways sort of humankind's first tool ever, like in this idea of dividing things into smaller yeah. things, um, you know, there's, there's probably some space back, you know, back in the reptile brain dedicated to this, this general concept. Yeah. So those three things have always been with me and, and you know, like they've kind of gone with me throughout my life. And so in my days at Burton, um, one of the Burton sub-brands called Gravis, which is a little sheet company that they were doing, um, did a little like folding pocket knife with a clip um, with the Gravis logo. And somebody gave me one. Um, and it was the first time that I had a knife that had a little clip that you put on your pocket and you can see. And I carried it like that every day for decades and immediately and it takes probably a week or two once you have that thing like handy like that you end up just using it all the time to slice open an apple or break down a box or clean out a fingernail or you know just to do this or that and you know every day you would end up using it multiple times and it really became indispensable um, quickly but the, the product itself was it was a licensed product from Smith and Wesson. Like it was coming from this like very tactical, literally from a gun brand. Mm -hmm. uh, it was blacked out, like just, you know, you know, black ops mystery product. Yeah. Um, the design was like overdone and it had like fake grips and like um, unnecessary curves. Um, 
and so like it worked great and i had had it for a long time it was really carrying this this meaningful patina which i really liked but i hated the brand and i actually hated the design of the thing um and yet i carried it every day because it was like this right thing for me to have handy and i also then now you know i always carried a pen i always carried a notebook there's just this little kit that i needed every day to live my life and the, the idea, the curatorial idea of like this daily curation of what makes it, what makes the cut to go along the ride with you. Uh, you know, those things come at a cost. They, they weigh something, they can be put somewhere and managed. But a, a short list of things will make it into my pocket every day because they are going to be meaningful to me and useful. Uh, and I thought, what a really interesting, what an interesting process that is to decide what those things are and where they live at night and how they get deployed throughout the day for me to do my best work or play. Um, and so that had always been kind of stirring around in my head. Um, and, you know, if you go back to notebooks of mine, you'll find like sketches of knives and things here and there. It's always kind of an interesting form and this bifurcation of handle and blade. And, um, so fast forward to, you know, I've been working at Nike um, and I've been working on these big digital products. I, I worked on Nike ID for a long time. I was the experience director for Nike ID. Oh. Um, and so big technological um, you know, design projects. And, you know, I was really missing the act of physically making something. Uh, you know, the, the benefit of working on digital products is uh, you know, hey, you don't have to tool it. You know, there is no like mass production. You just make it available and everyone shows up and uh, you get all this immediate feedback. And there's lots of parts of the digital product process that I think are really interesting and, and was really fun at the time. I'm like, oh man, we'll just A-B test this. We'll try this. We'll deploy it. You know, the, the whole idea of like minimum viable products. And but I'd had a blast doing that, but I was really missing the act of making something. And frankly, I was burned out on big corporate everything. Yeah. Um, it, it's taxing. Um, and just to, just to go back a little bit further, so I'd, I'd been with Nike in two stints. I left the Nike's, my first stint, to do a startup with um, industrial designer Scott Wilson out of Chicago mm. uh, for Minimal Design, who'd worked at Nike and done a lot of the vision uh, a lot of Nike's watches at that point and was a big creative director for them and one global creative director for Motorola. I had actually done an internship with him when he was at RCA in Indianapolis at Purdue. And he's the guy, you know, the Purdue industrial design program is not necessarily the strongest in the world. It was an engineering school that had an ID program. Um, Scott then now I think is a very gifted uh, designer. He's done, you know, the Xboxes that you know about and you know, lots of other products that you know Scott and his team have done. And so I was studying under Scott and I was understanding immediately like where the bar actually was. It was like, mm. oh my God, this guy is really talented. And so he really pushed me to get better, better than even the, the sure bar was within my program, but like better from the sense of what it's like out there in the world professionally. Um, and Scott and I are still friends, and we've been friends, you know, since the 1990s. Um, so I'd, I'd done this internship with Scott. I learned, like, sort of what was, like, how to, like, elevate myself. I started working for Burton. I went to work for Nike uh, with Scott, who was at Nike at the time. Um, 
got left and moved back to Chicago to work for Motorola and start his own firm, Minimal, which he's still doing. Um, and then he basically pulled me out of Nike to do a startup with him called Uncommon. Um, and we basically made the first sort of mass customizable iPhone cases where you can actually upload a photo of yourself or your dog or all of this really interesting artwork. And so we built all these relationships with artists and made this customizer um, and started this company up from scratch. And I, I quit a corporate job to do this. And we built it kind of from almost nothing to like having it in the market in like less than a year. And that was like designing new products, tooling them, mass producing them, designing the brand, designing the packaging, designing the interface, getting the site built, figuring out uh, operations and logistics. Um, and it was one of the hardest times of my life. I've never worked ever so hard at anything. Uh, I, you know, I got divorced. It cost me my marriage probably. Um, but you know, the good news, I guess, is that it was it, it proved to me like what was possible when you got everything else out of the way, when yeah. everything else was out of the way, you could do this. And again, that was the very beginning of doing some e-commerce. And so we kind of had stuff available. And I, I remember I would like I would go to bed and I would wake up and the first thing I would do is log in and people were buying the stuff. And I'm like, how can that be? We didn't even market it. And how do they you know, why are they? willing to trust us and give us $35 for this thing that they've never even seen. Um, so I learned a lot. Uh, I was very addicted to this idea of like being able to do your own thing. Um, and mm -hmm. Burton, even my days at Burton, it, at that point it was a big company, a lot of layers and politics. And it was frustrating because I was feeling like there were things in the way between myself and what consumers wanted. Yeah. Uh, but with Uncommon, there was none of that. None of it. I mean, the opposite. I, was just, I couldn't give them everything they needed fast enough. <laughs> um, but Un Uncommon didn't end well for, for me. And you know, we had Scott and I had a business partner who turned out to be you know, a criminal. <laughs> Basically, these Been stories, these stories write, write themselves all the time, right? Like this is not a new, this is not a new tale. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I left that experience feeling like that there was a lot that I really loved about it and I was kind of addicted to it, but there was a lot that I wanted to do differently. Um, you know, not getting burned and other things that I wanted yeah. to do differently. And so, um, I got on to, to work with Ziva in the consulting realm. I worked for JDK on the consulting side and gone back. I get, kind of got pulled back into Nike to work on Nike ID because they knew that I had left to do this customization experience with Uncommon. So they kind of tapped me to come back and work on customization. Um, so I, I, my career is kind of triangulated between sort of big like brand corporate lifestyle stuff, Burton and Nike, uh, design consulting with Ziva and JDK and Metaform Design and Minimal and other people that I've worked you know, with as a consultant. And then these entrepreneurial ventures of Uncommon and then the James brand. And so, you know, partially, like we, we were talking earlier about like this, this ride that we're all on, just doing these various things in the, in the creative realm. Um, it has been good for me to kind of cycle through those various things and each one informs the other and makes you better at it. And so I had this, like this very broad experience of, of all of those things. Um, but yeah. at the time I'd been drawing these knives. I felt like I was missing this thing. I wanted to make something physical. 
Um, and I kind of just had a vision for like what it could be. And it didn't seem like anybody else was doing it. And so you know, for a long time, the James brand was like this nights and weekends project. It was just me sketching and then me uh, messing around with it and, you know, working on, I, I would just fill notebooks with, with thoughts about it. Um, and then we kind of just decided to like make it more serious. So it goes from being a solitary venture to me pulling in uh, you know, my friend, Sam Amos, who was an industrial designer at Ziva. It was great. And being like, hey, do you want to kind of work with me on this idea? You know, we did it nights and weekends. Um, and when you have more people start coming in, you know, I start running out of night and weekend time. Uh, I finally had to make the sort of decision to either stop doing the James brand or stop working uh, at Nike and, and to commit to it full time. Mm. Uh, and so I did that, I think, uh, you know, a few years ago now, four, you know, four or five years ago. Huh. Um, and I've been doing it um, ever since. Cool. But but it was kind of a mashup of, you know, these were products that I cared about that I felt like were under-designed and sort of underrepresented. And I think the only company that had really played well in this space, and I still am kind of in awe of this company, is uh, Swiss Army, who doesn't even play by like general like night industry rules. They just do their own thing. They don't go to the shows. They don't distribute in the normal places, or they just distribute in all places. But their stuff is red and round and shiny and relatively affordable, but infinitely useful. But no one thinks about it as scary. But everyone uh, has one or knows someone that has one or has gifted one or received one. Uh, you know, I think they make like 50,000 a day or something, you know, the, the scale of what they actually do is amazing. And their ability to have parlayed that into a bigger lifestyle brand with watches and apparel and footwear and luggage, that was really interesting. That, that is a, uh, a unique brand. And that like, I mean, I've, I've found one before and I still have it. It's, you know, they could at the, that scale of, you know, production could be completely disposable, but it's one of those ones where it's iconic and, and you find one that you don't own, you're going to hold on to it. It's going to find a way to be gonna, in a drawer accessible to you. Yeah. Yeah. So funny uh, like that. And I thought the, that idea was really interesting. Like, no, no, there are people like can care about this product without it being scary, but you know, having it be utilitarian. Um, but we can bring things like good materiality and design and general experience to it, from you know, packaging yeah. to digital experience to customer service, even. Um, so, you know, from there, you just, you're kind of off and <laughs> you just kind of follow along where where it leads you. Cool. You know, one thing that stands out about the the James brand, Ryan, um, is you know th they are functional, but they are truly beautiful from a CMF perspective, and everything about them, the branding, like it feels like a valuable thing in your pocket. Uh, in addition to providing functionality, so what what's your thought process on achieving that balance um, in your approach to? all of the James brand products, whether it's the, the, the pen or the, the knife, like how do you, if someone were to give you a new pitch uh, for a new EDC product, like how do you sort of decipher that balance of functionality uh, and beauty in your design process? And, and what do you look for for inspiration? Um. Good, good question, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I pay attention to a lot of various designers and just what's happening in that world, you know, and I look at your, your classic Core 77s and design and you know, Pinterest and things, but I'm very interested, more so than ever, in, in the concept of minimalism. 
uh, both at, you know, as, at the lifestyle all the way down to an aesthetic. And that's partially driven by the fact that I think in, in the categories that we work with, so much had been overly done. And that same existed for me. There's a lot of pressure when we were working on snowboard bodies to make things overly done. Mm. Like, you know, 100% of Nike shoes are overly done. You don't need most of what is in there. Uh, and I think there's something so beautiful in the raw materiality of things like titanium. I mean, it's just, it's stunning. You know, bead blasted titanium with some curvature and some light is is worth worth the gaze. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, our general premise is from a, from a performance standpoint, it's kind of parody with comparative things. Like we're not generally trying to be innovative in that regard. I want it to work as well as uh, other things that we think are similar, um, but I want it to look better. I want to take away everything that I possibly can and then build back up what needs to be left. I really want the materiality and the form to be your primary communicator of what we're doing, which is one of the reasons we spend a lot of time and money on our photography. Like I want the lighting yeah. and the form and the materials to be the thing that tells our story. And then I want to come in and really sweat some details where nobody else has ever uh, done that before. There's a little bit of green here. This logo is not laser etched, but it's milled and filled with paint. Um, you know, and, and some of our partners hate us for that because yeah. <laughs> they, they've never done stuff like that. And they can't believe that anyone would think that it was important because it's so much more difficult. Um, but for us, like really getting two or three details correct um, is a fundamental part of our story. So, you know, I, I first just try to, you know, to your question, Simon, I try to just strip away everything that you don't need first and then start putting back in the things that you absolutely uh, yeah. And again, I think that approach fundamentally was just very different than what almost anybody else was doing in this space. Yeah, it's I don't, the consistency of like the brand world really like it. It seems like it helps create the the uh, you know that design brief and and the the boundaries that you need to design to. So if it if it has too much to communicate, it can't live on on your site and it can't tell its own story. So I think that's one of the things that's like it's really great going through the pro the product pages. And I, I also love that almost all of the products have a beautiful you know finished you know design sketch that really speaks to the thinking and the craft and you know if it can't hold itself there then you know you have not distilled it enough to yeah. I think, speak uh, to, right. to your yeah to the james brand kind of uh ethos which is really yeah, cool. that's right yeah Love that's it. right if it doesn't live there it's probably wrong beautiful so cool you know no one was really paying attention to photography like product photography in this space when we really started to do this and we're like no no i want to I want to I want to take a lot of shots. I want to show people the detail. How are we going to convince people to spend a lot of money on these expensive, you know, like pocket knives from a brand they've never heard of and a product they've never put in their hand? Yeah. And my part of that answer is good product photography. They need to they need to be able to look at it and feel like they can understand how that would feel, what it would weigh, what the scale is. Um, so it was not uncommon for you know, competitors to have maybe like one hero image on white that was like poorly lit and not, not yeah. retouched. And we're like, no, no, shoot, shoot six or seven, make them good, get in close, let's get a background. Let's make it so that they are rich and worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think um, your, your store, your online store, um, goes the extra mile so if i click on for example the barnes 
if I go to a regular Shopify site, forgive me for dropping that one, it, it, it usually ends at that product description on the right, some images on the left, and that's about it. But you you guys spend a lot of energy building out the narrative of each product uh, on a on a page below and that's tremendous amount of work extra photos there's a story there's sketches i wanted to ask you um those sketches uh, are they how do you typically do those are these um procreate digital um they look beautiful they're usually done by hand first and then they're done in procreate so they're traced lovely procreate after we kind of get them from yeah and the product photography is also exquisite yeah. another question i had for you sorry i'm jumping right into the product details is the um i'm about halfway down on the the barns and um the blade has it's kind of like this marbling kind of pattern to it or this topographical pattern on the blade and i know that there's a reason for that i just don't know what it is oh yeah so there's there's a steel called the damascus Yep. And, and it's a pattern steel, and you're actually taking two different steels, and you're they're they're welded together and hammered. And so every everything that you see there that looks sort of like that marbling, that's a different layer. And so you're basically wow. folding it and hammering it, folding it yeah. again and hammering yeah. it, and then slicing through it. And initially that was done you know, historically because you could make sort of a, a really durable blade steel that way. And, you know, so things like samurai swords are, are made that way and yeah. are made that way. These days there are engineering steels that are, you know, as strong or stronger. So you don't need it functionally as much anymore, but it creates this really beautiful, you know, like each one of those is different than the other. And it's real. It's not, uh, you know, printed or etched. It's uh, yeah. it's actually, that is the material. And again, the folds spilling, and the twists. Spilling the light on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, are amazing. Yeah. So, so Ryan, where do you see the future of, um, you know, what, what you're doing and, and the James brand, you know, I think we're moving more and more into, uh, analog experiences. Where, where do you see that going and, and where do you see the James brand fitting in with that? I mean, you know, I like to think of us as, you know, an, an accessories brand, you know, primarily we're not an EDC brand, we're not a knife brand, but we kind of call ourselves, you know, we're this modern minimal accessory brand. And so there is, and, and will continue to be this interesting evolution of like, here are the digital things that I carry with me every day, my phone, my ear pods, my watch, mine happens to be analog, but you can do what you want. Um, and, and so I think complementing those digital things with the analog things that are both you know, equal parts, uh, emotional conveyances and functional tools. Uh, we'll continue to explore what that is. So that's kind of like the brief. One of the things that I think is very interesting about the digital space, and, and we've all been fooled into this, somehow this thing that we all have in our pockets at $600,000, $700,000 is disposable and has no emotional content to it whatsoever. There's an yeah. there's emotional connection to the content which you can get through it, but the device, the thing, is of absolutely no connection. And it leaves you wanting something that actually has that. And so this idea of like, what things can we make that really um, can convey value, both in terms of how they feel, how you got them. You know, a lot of our product is received as gift. 
I will buy you this pen and put your initials on it. I will buy you this because I want you to have it. It comes from me. Um, so I think we'll continue to explore what that means. And, and every, you know, the idea of like those two things smashed together. We don't do the digital stuff, but other people do. We do the physical analog stuff um, through the lens of modern, minimal, and then through the lens of every day. We don't want to do the things that are specific, but we want to do the things that are kind of generic um, and utilitarian that make that curatorial jump from dresser top to pants pocket to hand and kind of back every day. Just because I think it's a funny area to play. Like, you know, it, it, I used to do this exercise, and I'm still doing now. Sometimes where I'll go, and there's a site called EverydayCarry.com. It features people's laydowns, like their pocket dumps, and uh, curated, organized, labeled. Um, and I'd scroll through there, and you know, one out of every twenty or thirty was on white and well lit, and with products in titanium and brands that I supported. And people had clearly built a system, and you can look at that, and you can infer rightly or wrongly, a lot about that person. Who are they? Mm. What's their name? Where, where do they live? Where are they from? What do they care about? What magazines are they reading? What's the last movie they saw? What kind of car are they driving? And I think that is really um, fun and enjoyable for yeah. us, yeah. Uh, both to take that in from other people, but to also put that out. Like, imagine this person and, and leaving some mystery in it. Who is the person that carries this laydown of stuff? Mm. Um, so it's, it's a fact. I'm having fun. This is exploratory. <laughs> um, you know, we're in a we're in a new realm here. There aren't really a lot of people doing exactly what we're doing, and hopefully, that's the opportunity. And so, for me, moving forward, it's um, again, I kind of want to just continue the ride here. I don't have anything else up my sleeve, but I do. Uh, you know, sooner or later, I would love to teach something again because I think it's just maybe the most important way to give back to others. Um, but you know, beyond that. I'm interested in kind of continuing the creative leadership here and making it so at some point this place can fully function without me having to be here. Um, you know, that's really brand work and setting a foundation and getting that stuff to be, you know, the reason it's not called Ryan's knife company is the James Ryan's <laughs> bigger idea. James is just a muse of a person that lives a better life than I do. Uh, and so this thing should outlive me and the values should translate and the executions should change. Um, so divorcing myself from this place, uh, designing the job I want to have and the role that I want to have in it over the next you know, number of years, like that'll be part of the work too. Cool. Uh, how do I continue to stay involved but uh, change my role, you know, as, as things change I change. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo or visit PlanCo.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.